Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kate Dowden. And I grab a dirty washcloth off the bathroom floor and I soap it up and I'm like washing his dick and I'm like, you like that? <laughs> that and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of our new sponsors and this is my new favorite online store. I have had a fabulous personal experience with Thrive Market. If you spend a lot of time going to the grocery, you can forget about that. Thrive Market, they sell all the top organic and healthy products at 25 to 50% off shipped straight to your door. Just do a price comparison to Whole Foods or, or whatever grocery store you like to shop at. You can easily find price comparisons on their site next to each product. It shows the retail price versus the Thrive Market price. And the savings, it's striking. They cut out the middleman and they work directly with the brand so they pass all the savings on to their members. I couldn't get over how quickly the package came, how fantastic their own brands are, their Thrive Market brands of stuff that they make are. It's just top-notch. I got myself some Lara bars, some apple cider vinegar, some nuts and seeds. I got myself a lot of bathroom supplies. I thought to myself, oh, but they probably don't have the super high-quality grain-free cat food, but they do. The site is super helpful and easy to use, too. You know how, well, myself, I'm often checking to see if the ingredients of something are really vegan. Well, the site does it for you. With a click of a button, you can just check for everything in the catalog that's vegan. So you get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial. Now, keep in mind, the prices are already 25 to 50% below retail because they cut out the middleman. Now they're offering this additional $60 of free groceries. So go to thrivemarket.com slash risk, thrivemarket.com slash risk. You're going to be amazed at scrolling through the site, seeing all the stuff you can get and how convenient it is, and how high quality it is. And it's just such a treat when the box arrives. So one last time, that's $60 of free organic grocery credits, plus free shipping, and that 30-day trial when you go to thrivemarket.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Beastie Boys behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Help! With an exclamation point, like the Beatles song. Oh my god, 
I am so, <laughs> so spent, my friends. I have spent, I don't know how many days in a row, editing the book, the Risk book, the first draft of it, working on the, the editing of it. Holy camoles, has that been an experience? Reliving some of, especially some of the really intense ones, was just something else. It was quite astounding to me to see the stuff that I had kind of forgotten. When you're reading it on the page, little nuances come out that you 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 might have like just slipped by when you were listening to the person talk. So anyway, you can pre-order the Risk book at theriskbook.com. I'll tell you, I feel like I've been hit by a truck not being able to leave my apartment for many days, just doing like 15-hour days of just like non-stop editing of the book and the heat went out in my I mean it was just crazy so uh, the first round of editing the book is done and it's really really exciting you gotta pre-order it and get everyone you know to pre-order it at theriskbook.com now in a little bit we're going to hear from Kate Dowden who did the show the last time we were there in Salt Lake City but before that, we're going to hear from comedian Carl Yard. You can find him on Facebook at Funny Bajan. That's B-A-G-A-N because he's originally from Barbados. Uh, Carl shared this at a show that we did last August in New York. The show was called In It Together, Stories of Strength in Diversity. So here is Carl now with a story we call Fix This. Uh, thank you. Um, so in the summer of uh, 1986, I was living in Barbados and obviously having a good time. I got a call from my relative, wanted to know if I'm interested in coming to America, immigrating to America. So I said, of course. Right? All the Americans I have met while being in Barbados were all nice, smiling, and happy white people. That's what they were, right? So I'm like, why would I not want to go to a country where there are all these white, nice, smiling, happy white people, right? Where's my bag? I can't wait to get to America to meet with these, all these lovely white people. You guys are laughing. <laughs> so I packed my bags and I moved to America because uh, not only were all these wonderful people in America, but all the postcards we saw of America were all beautiful. You know, New York had no garbage. We thought America had no garbage. I swear to God. Right? We saw pictures of New York, the, the um, Brooklyn Bridge and the Empire State Building, and it was no garbage, all the pretty lights. So that was America to us. So all my friends think I thought I'm going to this great country. Wish I was, so not knocking your country. <laughs> so I moved to America and um, I uh, made some friends, eventually made some friends you know, in my neighborhood. So one summer day, I, uh, me and my three friends, we were driving around the neighborhood. We were all in this car just driving around, acting stupid. 
You know, back then there was a song by uh, Belle DeVoe called Poison. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yeah, remember that? Poison. And we drive around, we're blasting that song, we're singing loud, out of tune. We weren't messing with anyone, just being silly. We pulled up to an intersection. And as we pulled up to this intersection, we kind of noticed some kind of commotion going on to the right of the intersection, you know. So, so we looked over, and to the right of us, there was a guy beating the hell out of a woman. This white guy was punching this white woman in her face as she sat in the passenger side of a little blue car. He was just repeatedly punching her in the face, just punching her. I'm not sure how long this was going on because it looked like she had given up. She was just sitting there, face bleeding both sides, and this guy would just get punching her. It didn't, it didn't look like he was going to let up. He just get punching her and punching her. He was huge. I mean, he, he looked like um, Andre the Giant and Grizzly Adams because he had his huge beard. And I don't know, because he was so big that made her look so small because she kind of looked, you know, tiny. She kind of looked like Tinkerbell, but he would just repeatedly punch her in the face. So I saw this. So I started, hey, guys, stop. We got to go. We got to go, right? So I reached for the handle to open the door to get out, thinking I'm gonna jump on the car, we're all gonna rush this guy. I heard, choom, all four car doors locked, locked. So I'm trying to open it, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? So I'm screaming at the guys, like, come on, we gotta go help this lady. The car went silent. I'm like, what? I'm thinking, myself, what is going on? Then, out of the blue, the car started moving. Car starts slowly moving. So I'm like, guys, we gotta go help this lady. They just took off. The car going down the highway, nobody's saying anything. I stopped talking. So eventually we pulled into a mall parking lot. Parked all the way in the back, I don't know why. The guys pulled into a parking space, you know, park. Handbrakes came up on the car. And then all four guys turned and looked at me. And then the driver looked at me and said, listen, Carl, you're new to this country. So you don't get it, but let me play out this scenario for you, okay? Four black men get out of their car to go help a white woman who's being beat up by a white man. Somebody sees this, calls the police. Police show up, they're probably gonna be white. Sees four black men surrounding a white man. In the background, there's a white woman crying and bleeding from her face. What do you think is going to happen, Carl? You go, we are fucking dead. Okay, no questions asked. We are freaking dead. He said, there's nothing we can do in that situation to help her. We will all be fucking dead, okay? I know you are new to the country, you know what I mean? I know you have a different view, but that's exactly what would happen. That was 25 years ago, and to this day, that still bothers me. It does. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, when I heard that, I thought to myself, what kind of country did I move to? I could not save her life because she's white, I'm black, and the police is white. That just didn't make sense to me, right? But you know the first thing that came into my head when that situation happened? I thought to myself, I gotta fix this, right? I thought, I gotta fix this, this country needs me. You know, this country, that's what I thought to myself. This country needs somebody like me because I got to fix this. Because the fact that I can watch 
somebody die and not do anything just because we are different colors just didn't make sense to me. So I find out when you live in this country and you're black, you come into so many different situations because you're black. I call it like being hit with buckshot. It's like little subtle racist things that happen to you day after day and you have to deal with it. Some of you have to laugh off and some, you know what I mean? You just have to deal with it. Like, um, I got to get my passport renewed and uh, I go to the police station to get my fingerprints and the police that came out to do my passport uh, renewal said to me, uh, okay, we're gonna do your fingerprints. You've done this before, right? <laughs> I go, well, I didn't say anything. I started thinking of all kind of donut jokes I could, you know, <laughs> but I didn't, you know. Or like um, I worked for uh, this huge five, Fortune 500 company and uh, we would have weekly meetings about how to progress the company, how to uh, make the company profitable. And I would have a great idea about, you know, and I would say, hey, why don't we do this? You know, I think this will work great. And everybody just look at me and smile, okay, Carl. Then like 10 minutes later, a white guy would have the same exact same suggestion as me, right? Oh, oh, oh that's great, white George, that's a... <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. I'm like, hey, I, I thought of it first, right? But that's just the way it is, and it's just a little thing, because sometimes you ever meet somebody, and you say, like, you might meet a black person, you tell them that one black joke, and they explode. You know, it's not about that one joke, it's about all the bullshit they had to put up with, you know what I mean, in their entire life, and then that one thing just made them go, Poof, you know. But some things are funny, though. Some things that I thought was funny, like um, my wife and I bought a house, so we were fixing up the house, you know, having stuff done to the house. So the plumber was there. We had the guy putting in the windows was there. The cable guy was there. I was there, was, you know, fixing, doing some stuff, you know, in the kitchen with the plumber. So the cable guy finishes up first. So he comes downstairs, cable guy comes downstairs. He sees the plumber who's white, assumes the plumber owns the house. And he says to the plumber, um, uh, listen, sir, I'm all set. I'm all finished with your cable installation. Um, you have that BET channel, that's a channel with the black people. Once I leave, you can cancel it, you don't have to keep that. I swear to God. The plumber looked at him, looked over at me, and then said, well, you better tell him because it's his house. I swear, because so I peeked around the corner and our, our eyes met. Now I'm standing there, I got a hammer in my hand, I got sheetrock dust. I'm, I'm not a happy black man covered in sheetrock dust with a hammer in my hand. I swear, he just... It's like he teleported, he just disappeared, he left his cable bag. I'm not even sure if he took his truck. It looked like he just took off running. And, uh, you know, so, and then there was a, a time when um, uh, I was driving in a snowstorm, and uh, about 100 yards ahead of me, I saw a car go off the road. This car went off the road and into a ditch, right? So your first instinct as a human being is, oh my God, I gotta help this person. So I drive up, I get out of my car, I ran over, started tapping on the window, hey, are you okay? So then I, you know, there was a snow and stuff, so I moved the snow, I looked inside, and there was this really old, old white lady in the car, she was shaking. Not because it was cold, she was freaking scared, she was just staring ahead. Her knuckles were like marshmallow white, and she was just shaking. So I tapped, hey, are you okay? So then finally she looked over at me, and the first thing she did was, she locked the car door. I swear, I got, really? Lady, you think I'm sitting at home waiting for a snowstorm just so I can go out and rob people? Right? I mean, come on, right? 
So eventually she rolled the window down, not much, you know what I mean, because I might be able to stick my hand in and grab a bag or something. About a couple inches, and I say, can you take your foot off the brake, I'm gonna push, you know, you hit the gas. So I went behind the car, you know, she hit the gas, so now I'm like eating fresh snow, mud, all kinds of stuff, I'm falling down, you know what I mean, I'm getting up, I'm pushing, you know what I mean, she's pushing, eventually I got her out, she drove off, she didn't stop to say thank you, she just went toot toot with the horn. I took that as a thank you, and I waved her off and said, uh, you know, have a good night or whatever. But, you know, in the beginning of my story, I said, you know what I mean, I thought, I can fix this, you know what I mean? But I began to realize after being in this country for a while that we have to fix this. It's not something I can do alone, because just imagine that lady was being beaten up. Right? Imagine that was one of your loved ones or one of your relatives and you came home and they told you that you know, your mom, your aunt, your niece, your sister, whatever died and there were four black guys that were there but they couldn't help because they could die themselves. So think about that and uh, thank you and ladies and gentlemen, we really gotta fix this. Thank you. that I was diagnosed with cancer was not the first time that I considered having kids with my Viking Adonis boyfriend, Brett, but it was definitely the first time we talked about it. It was awkward. I remember coming home from one of the super fun oncology appointments I was at that week and knowing that I had to have this first conversation with him about kids and not wanting to. I might have taken a Xanax, I'm not sure, but I had this feeling in my belly like you get right before you go down the big hill on the roller coaster. And I sat him down with his favorite coping mechanism, which was a little bit of bourbon, and I said, I know this has been kind of a hard week with cancer and stuff, but, you know, how would you feel about maybe fertilizing some of my eggs with your sperm so that we could maybe freeze them and turn them into people later in the future? And he just kind of 
stared at me. And he blinked his little sugary blonde eyelashes at me and just, it was this pinwheel computer face. Now, Brett knew that my stage two breast cancer was aggressive and that the chemo that they wanted to start like yesterday was going to target my reproductive organs and could make me sterile. And I said, so take your time. We have until tomorrow (laughs) to make this decision, so I'm going to go for a drive. I left him with his thoughts, and I went on a nice long drive up the canyon, and when I came home, he was standing in the kitchen, and he just kind of scooped me up in a big hug. He's much taller than me. And he kissed the top of my head, and he said, yeah, I think we should do it into my hair. Now, until I was diagnosed with cancer, I wasn't sure like what Brett thought of our future together. I had invited him to move into the house that I bought. It had been three years, but we never talked about future stuff. He never, I don't know, showed me the things or did anything that made me think, oh yeah, this guy totally wants to marry me and have babies with me. But in that moment in the kitchen, I knew. In vitro fertilization with a cancer patient started off as fun as you might think it would be. (laughs) The doctors told us that the way that the first thing we needed to do was to figure out if Brett's sperm could penetrate my egg. And how they were going to do that was surround a gerbil ovum, an egg from a gerbil, with his sperm. Now, if he could penetrate the gerbil egg, then he passed the gerbil test. And if he couldn't penetrate the gerbil egg, he failed the gerbil test. And so, while I contemplated the secret meetings of gerbil humans, (laughs) Brett started to gear up for his first spooge in a cup. Now, being the really responsive cancer patient girlfriend that I was at the time, he came home after he gave his sample, and I was like, hey, how was it? (laughs) And he said, oh, it was kind of awkward. You know, you could hear people talking in the hallway about their weekend. (laughs) They had Jack Johnson and Sarah McLachlan playing in the room. But, you know, I brought some lube from home, and so it was fine. And that kind of tickled something in the back of my head, something I might have signed my life away to on the 200 pages that we signed the day before. And I just had a question, and so I called the clinic, and, oh, my God, you would have thought, I said, hey, is it okay if I bring this bomb on the plane? Sample 2784 has been contaminated. Get it off the shelf. Run! It was so embarrassing. They made such a big deal out of this. And Brett was embarrassed. And he was mad. And my sweet, darling, mellow, calm Adonis Viking 
was mad. And the only time I had seen him be mad before was when people like run red lights. I get mad when people walk too slow up half a mile in front of me, but things like that don't bug him. But he was a trooper and he went in and he gave a second sample without lube. And that sample showed that he failed the gerbil test. And that was hard. Because he felt like a failure. And he felt like he had let me down and now we would have to do this several thousand dollar thing on top of this other several thousand dollar thing we were already doing. This is a guy who moved to Utah from Kentucky to get his PhD in bioengineering with an emphasis in neural engineering. He moved here to climb and to ski. Everything was always just so easy for Brett. He didn't really study in school. He was just like, oh, cool, PhD, right? Any activity that he decided to do, he was just always good at. And any musical instrument, he could just pick anything up and play it, and it would be cute. And you'd be like, oh, I must have done this before. And he's like, no, it's my first time. And so things were always really easy for Brett, and here I was bringing cancer and failure and uncertainty and fear. We had just started. This was step one. We still had chemo and radiation and surgery and so many other things I didn't even know about yet. And it was almost more than I could bear. The rest of the IVF cycle went along as awkwardly and as pumped full of hormones as you might think it would be. And so the morning that they said, Kate, congratulations. I think we can harvest your eggs tomorrow. I was so relieved. Until they said, but we're going to need a sample from Brett today. And my heart sank. I was planning on this early Sunday morning, which is what time it was, a little, you know, light penetration with my dear friend, the donkey dick ultrasound. But I wasn't planning on a demanding phone call to my boyfriend demanding his sperm. I was hoping to, you know, wake him up with like the smell of waffles or something silly. <laughs> And so I said, okay, okay, is there any other way I can get the sperm from him to you without him coming here? And she said, oh, sure. And she pulled out this little sandwich bag, this little paper brown bag, and she said, in here is a sterile condom and a sterile twist tie and a sterile cup. You can go home, wash his penis with warm soapy water, and then have intercourse with this condom with no lubrication, okay? Now, I had some questions. (laughs) But before I could ask them, she said, you might want to hurry because we close in about an hour. (laughs) I grabbed the bag. I ran out of the clinic, I jumped into my car, I dangerously sped home, screeched into the driveway, banged open the back door, and froze. There he was, 
standing on the back steps, and in one hand, he had a little jewelry store bag with little pink tissue paper poking out of the top, and in the other hand, he had a bouquet of flowers, and I almost threw up because I forgot until he said, Happy Valentine's Day, Kate. I have something for you. And that's when I held up my little brown paper sack and said, Oh, Brett, I have something for you, too. I ushered him into the bathroom for, you know, I thought, I can make this sexy. I mean, warm, soapy water. I mean, what's not sexy about that? And as I was ushering him into the bathroom and telling him what was about to happen to him, we got in there, and my sexy, like, soapy water scene turned into, like, elbows and awkward and we're in my tiny bathroom and his dick wouldn't fit into the sink because the sink was way too high and then I was like okay it's cool and I grab a dirty washcloth off the bathroom floor and I soap it up and I'm like washing his dick and I'm like I'm looking him right in the eye and I say oh yeah you like that I'll show you clean In my mind, it was super sexy, but in reality, I was just splattering his legs with soap and water, and eventually, he just grabbed the washcloth, and he was like, woman, get in that bedroom, take off all your clothes, and get ready for the hottest, sterilest, unlubricatedest sex of your life. And like a good girl, I followed directions. And as it turns out, the sex was sterile. It was super unlubricated. And it was not hot, though. It was not hot. Now, if you were standing outside the door, it would have sounded hot because I am so good at sex noises. But if you would have looked at my face, it would have had this, like, grimace... Like someone dropped a frozen turkey on my foot. I mean, lubrication has a place. And right now, that place was in nowhere in that room, and I felt like I was fucked by a sandpaper. Oh, shit, it was awful. It was so painful. And he looked down at me, and he says, this is not comfortable for you, is it? And I couldn't even say anything. I was just shook my head no. He was a champion. He finished quick, like a bunny. Not that that's the huge. And I was so glad when he was done because it was just the second before he relieved me of my vaginal lining. And when he was done, I jumped out of bed and I jumped into my clothes and I was like, oh yeah, we got 18 minutes to spare. We are killing this. And I looked over and he's still fucking around on the bed with the condom and at first I was pissed. I was like, what the fuck, dude? And then I looked and realized with horror that the unlubricated sterile condom was 
stuck. I mean, stuck. He was peeling this off, and his skin was tenting up, and he was grimacing, and I thought, oh, God, I'm a nurse. It's okay. I got this, and I jump up on the bed, and I'm like, okay, here we go. What can I do here? But everything I could think of involved spit or lube and would contaminate our sample, and I'm like, fuck. And now, I guess he could have just ripped it off, but, you know, it's only our future children in the tip, so don't worry, just spray that around. And so I had to just sit there and watch as the seconds ticked by and he painfully peeled this condom off and it looked like he was trying to tear apart two pieces of duct tape that were stuck sticky side together it was awful I was looking for skin and blood thinking how I would care for this wound when he finally got it off and he handed it to me and I was like ah yeah this is me I got this and I grabbed the thing and I was like oh now now to be fair I had just undergone three weeks of poking needles into my belly full of hormones, so it could have been the hormones, could have been the adrenaline, could have been the hot sex, but I fumbled. I almost spilled all of our little babies out onto the bed, and I thought, where the fuck is the sterile twist tie? And then I found it wrapped that little fucker up, got it in the sterile cup, sped to the clinic and arrived and handed her the cup, looked at my watch, and I had one minute to spare. I am pleased to report that we got eight fertilized embryos out of that cycle, which is huge for anyone who knows IVF. We threw those seven embryos into the freezer for seven years while I went through treatment. We got married, and we waited to see if my cancer was going to come back. And we had to figure out this whole surrogacy thing and how to pay for it. We ended up thawing all of those embryos. One of them didn't make it. Five of them went into a surrogate to the tune of $80,000. And we have one left. We still don't have a baby. But we haven't given up hope. And even though our reproductive life didn't turn out the way we thought, I've learned that there is so much magic in those unexpected events. This is where Brett and I learn to trust each other, to talk to each other, to love each other, and lean on each other. And now I know that no matter what wonderful or horrifying thing life is going to throw at us, Brett and I will be able to shoulder it together. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Saint Motel behind me now. And we just heard from Kate Dowden, who has performed a lot at The Bee, the show The Bee in Salt Lake City. Great storytelling show. You can also find her at nursekate.com or on Twitter at Conqueror Kate. Hey, I have to give a little shout out to Jay Brawley, who is one of our $25 or more per month people at Patreon. And, you know, we like to give folks a shout out when, they, when they're when they that generous with us on the show. A lot of people say, hey, you talk too much <laughs> before and between the stories, Kevin. Well, did you know that if you become a patron of ours at Patreon, you can access the ad-free versions of the episodes if you're a $10 a month or more patron of ours at Patreon. So uh, thank you to Jay Brawley and the rest of you. Go on over to patreon.com slash risk, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash risk, and explore the exciting world of me not talking so much. Hey, our friends at adamandeve.com have a fabulous Valentine's Day offer of 50% off almost any item, a free romance kit, a free DVD, and free shipping. And the code that you should use is RISK. Enter the code RISK at adamandeve.com for this fabulous deal. They have so much there. They have the real high-end sorts of toys. They have the much more affordable stuff. They've got all the condoms and lube and all that that you might need. The romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something you'll both enjoy, plus that free DVD and all that. So, adamandeve.com. Use the promo code RISK. Also... Postage rates have gone up again. Stamps.com helps you keep your rates down with postage discounts up to 40%. Discounts you can't even get at the post office. Just use Stamps.com. They automatically calculate and print the correct amount of postage for every letter and package you send. They bring all the services of the U.S. Postal Service to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And then the mail carrier picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They send you a digital scale to automatically calculate exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and that digital scale. So go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Our final story 
on this week's episode is another one that was shared at that Salt Lake City show. This is Brian Higgins. You can find him at createrealchange.org. That's real, R-E-E-L. It's filmmaking to break down stigmas around mental health. Now, this story, it involves a situation where children are in harm's way. So I think some people would appreciate a little heads up about that before we go into it. Here he is now. This is Brian Higgins with a story we call My Saviors. So ring a ling a ling a ling ling went the school bell. It didn't really phase me because I was in a trance-like state waiting to catch the ball at break time. But ring a ling a ling a ling a ling, the old copper bell was being shook by my P2 teacher, which is first grade for all the Americans in the room. <laughs> you know, it still didn't phase me, and I was wondering why I wouldn't be excited to get inside. But you remember back when the school bell would ring? And that, that just signified the end of freedom at break time and back to prison of the classroom. But third time's a charm. Ring-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Again, I didn't want to go in. And you would think I would because of the frigid conditions. Because our little school uniforms were like a cross between Oliver Twist and the Hitler Youth. <laughs> Complete with little caps and short shorts. But again, third time's a charm. We all lined up to go into the old Victorian schoolhouse, which is called Drumkeen. And it was named because it was about drumming facts and figures into all the keen little children, with one hand on the Bible and the other hand on the cane. And we went on in. It was a special day because Mr. Sullivan was coming to visit. Now, Mr. Sullivan, he wasn't quite the headmaster of the big school up the road, but he really wanted to be. And back in those days, it was really survival of the punishers. And I was usually in his sights, not because I was a bad lad, but because I was dyslexic. And back in those days, you were seen to be stupid with dyslexia. So we were all lined up against the wall while he walked back and forward, and he uh, read the charges. Some of you boys have been cheating on your spelling. And of course I knew it was me, and he knew it was me as well, because spelling plus dyslexia doesn't really go too well. And he said again, I'll give you a chance to own up for it. But there was no fucking way that I was going to volunteer for a caning. So again, we all stood there up against the wall, and I could hear the footsteps and the old creaky floorboards behind me, back and forward, back and forward, creak, creak, creak. Then there was silence right behind me, and there was nothing that I could hear except for the heavy breathing down my neck and the stench of tobacco pipe. And then suddenly it was thwack, thwack, thwack across the back of my legs. And then another awareness of the disappointing aspect of having to wear short shorts at school came to mind because a couple of droplets of blood rolled down the back of my legs while the droplets of tears rolled down my cheeks because the bastard had used the thornbush branch to cane me. Because you see, Mr. Sullivan, he could go from monster to teddy bear in two seconds. And I always thought that sometimes, you know, he looked after me. I had an inkling that he was trying to nurture me. And it was always scary because I would hear when the, 
the public announcement system in the school would crackle. It's like, Brian Higgins to Mr. Sullivan's office, Brian Higgins to Mr. Sullivan's office. And then the sound of my shuffling feet towards my fate, towards my doom. And I never really knew what I was going to get. You know, sometimes you'd be standing underneath his massive crucifix in his office and you'd either get a crack from the cane or you'd get a congratulatory pat on the shoulders. But again, who knows with Mr. Sullivan? Because sometimes I would see him outside and I was a scrawny little fella back in the days and it seemed that he was looking after me. And I was ripe for bullying, especially on the rugby pitch. But he would find all the muddiest puddles and help me practice my dive passes. And then he would stay after school and watch while I scrubbed my little red body raw in the showers. So it was a difficult time. But again, he nurtured me and a lot of the other teachers didn't because again, with the dyslexia and the learning difficulties, I was a lot of the times put in the corner in the dunce hat. But I would see him outside sometimes, especially at church. And he was a mammoth of a man. And I was always scared when I'd sit on the pew and think that he would sit on the other side and then it would catapult us because he was so big and flip me off into space. <laughs> and I never really knew, depending whether I would see him in his old school black cloak with all the, the chalk stains or I would see him in his Sunday best. But he would always come over to me with a welcoming, inescapable grip. And he had a big old smile, big grin on his face. And he would say, I hope you're going to be a good Christian boy one day. And you know, I did try, because again, being a very Christian uh, country and a Christian school, it was beneficial to be Christian. And I did try until I was about 11 and the devil came knocking and he had treats. <laughs> treats in the form of Dungeons and Dragons and shoplifting. <laughs> and soon, cheers of Jesus loves me, this I know, turned into wizards and free sweeties. And I loved it and it was great. But I wasn't alone, because there was lots of other people doing it as well. But don't tell them I told you, but some of those other boys were smashing windows and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> but there was terrible debauchery across the school and everyone was scared. And there were many school assemblies to talk about how we were gonna change this because you can't let the devil get into a good Christian school. And it was a terrible time until camp season came along. Now every year they would come up with this camp that while well, the children would go away off to, and they would thinly veil it that it was a really cool, adventurous time full of joys and, and tribulations like you've never seen before. But it was just about praising Jesus. And sometimes they would say, okay, we're gonna go and we're gonna do all this. And sometimes we'll go to see Manchester United or we'll go and see Liverpool. But you can only go if you're a good Christian boy. I suppose it was like Disneyland for us, for all the boys and girls. But hold on, that's a mistake. Just for all the boys, because it was only boys who were allowed to go and only good Christian boys. But luckily with my Dungeons and Dragons skills, I wasn't a Christian anymore. And you could hear these hushed tones of all the other teachers and the parents trying to work out what to do. And they were saying, let the parents deal with it. More Bible study, let's expel them. Except for Mr. Sullivan. You know, he stood up at the assembly and the floorboards creaked again. And with his clenched fist, he says, no, love conquers all. We should take them to camp. And with the love of our Lord and round the clock attention, we'll be able to bring them back into the flock. And I know the exact lost little lambs that I can take. And no prices for guessing that I was one of those lost little lambs. So I was herded up and put into the minibus at night and we were going off on our journey. I remember my head was jammed up against the window of the minibus trying to get some sleep because it was an overnight trip. 
and I could see the lights flicking back and forward as we went down the motorways in Northern Ireland. And then across the Irish Sea in the old rust salty boat over to Scotland through the highlands and weaving down to the lowlands of England. Again, with all the lights just flicking, flicking, flicking. And it seemed to me that it was Morse code that or semaphore that was warning of my impending doom. But we got there after about a 12-hour journey and we all got to the camp and we got off bleary-eyed and what we saw was more like a concentration camp rather than a holiday camp. It was rows and rows and rows of all these old wooden cabins that had the lost souls of all these poor little innocent boys that were there. And we got off and I was put in the bunk beds that were furthest away from the main building but we didn't have much time to get comforting. There was praying to be done. And we were all shipped off to the chapel and we prayed 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 a bit more. And every once in a while, some of my peers would see the light and they would fall down to their knees and they would praise Jesus to come into their heart, which would then entail with a lot of jubilation and celebration and everybody would lift them up upon high and we'd sing some hymns. But I never joined that pack and I would see the older men and they would be crying their eyes out. And sometimes I would have to white knuckle it on the edge of the pew trying not to join the ranks. So it never worked out for me. And I remember just like the Holy Ghost, I could still feel Mr. Sullivan's gaze, you know, but now it was suffocating me. So we were off in bed that night and it was pitch black. The light was clicked off. And I don't really know how long it was, but I think maybe about 1.30 I woke up and it was dark, 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 dark. The only thing darker was what was coming towards me. And again, I could hear the footsteps creaking along the floorboards. Then I felt a hand on my sleeping bag and a whispered tone said, come with me. But I didn't want to disappoint, so I followed him through. And he took me into his private room and a dim light in the corner illuminated Mr. Sullivan again. But now he looked like more of a monstrosity from a Pink Floyd cartoon than what he used to be. And he was in a state of undress and he was just down to his boxer shorts. Again, he held me in um, the inescapable grip and tears were streaming down his bulbous cheeks, dripping onto the shoulders of my pajamas. And he whispered again, I'm terrified for your soul. And he started to undress me because he said we had to pray now and we had to be naked in front of Jesus, bare our souls. And he undressed himself, pulled down his box of shorts and he pulled off my pajamas and he pushed me down to my knees, down to his crotch and I could see his penis getting erect inside. And I was terrified. The coldness of that room, just nothing, no joy at all. And there was no fight or flight, it was just hold tight. And I started to dissociate, you know, remove my soul from this position when he started to pray. I didn't know what to do, I could sort of see myself, I was having an out-of-body experience, and it was like a computer game. Like I knew that I could function, I knew that I could turn left, I could turn right, I could do anything, but I just couldn't communicate. I couldn't feel emotion, and I didn't know how to get out of the situation. But then perhaps due to divine inspiration, I had a thought in my head that if I actually did bring Jesus into my heart and prayed as loud as I could, I could maybe wake up everybody else in the following room and they could come in and save me. So I did. I started saying, Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus Christ, come into my heart. And it worked. I heard the feet shuffling. I heard all the bedclothes moving. And I heard all my friends and peers coming towards me, along with the other teachers. 
and they burst into the room and they were my true saviors. And they grabbed me and again with the jubilations, lift me upon high. And I was so happy to be out of that situation. I remember as they were pulling me out into the other room, I looked back and I could just see Mr. Sullivan's big smile. I tried to be a Christian for about five years or so. I did lead a good Christian life. I went to Bible study. I, I communicated the word of the Lord and everything. But always just that terrifying night back in that day, back in the cabin. And the only other moment that was just as painful for me was the night that I denounced Jesus and asked him to leave my heart. It was about five years after that, and I remember saying, I've had enough, God, be gone. And all the pain came rushing back. And you can take that as you will. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is tristan behind me now and you know how i discovered this song there is a risk fan named sarah irvin who every month she creates a new playlist for me on spotify about 15 or so songs that she suggests i might one day want to include on the show if you're a kind of a music lover and you know obscure music and you know, you love the kind of music you hear on the show, you could do that too. Just email me at kevin at show.com. And we just heard from Brian Higgins. Don't forget, you can look him up at createrealchange.com. That's real as in film real, R-E-E-L. And don't forget to pre-order The Risk Book at theriskbook.com. If you belong to any sort of organization like a community center, you know, a gay and lesbian or a Planned Parenthood or a mental health facility, a place that might really value a book of people telling true stories about the most meaningful or traumatic or beautiful moments from their personal lives, Reorder a book for that organization. It's theriskbook.com, and it really is extraordinary, I can tell you. It is an extraordinary collection, and we're really hoping it does well so that we can come out with another one ASAP. 
Now, here is where Risk is appearing live next on February 17th. We are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. We'll have Kate Willett, Diana Dinerman, Paul Gilmartin, and Sabrina Jalise there. On February 24th, we are back at Caveat in, <laughs> in New York City. Our first show at Caveat was so great in January. So our February 24th show there, we don't have the cast finalized just yet, but it's going to be fabulous. Other ways to get involved with Risk are to go to risk-show.com and see all that's going on there. You can pitch us your stories. You can check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Risk Show. You can give us a great review on iTunes and you can check out our education at thestorystudio.org. All kinds of storytelling training, including corporate workshops, if you just go to thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. <sighs> Take a risk. Easter, 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 Easter,